Welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. We're back with part two of the life of Alexander the Great. A quick recap of where we're at. Alexander grows up in Macedonia, takes over as king when his father dies, mops some things up back home, then invades the Persian Empire. He scores a major victory at the Battle of Granicus, which wins him all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then he wins another large battle at the Battle of Issus. And for the first time, he has defeated the fully assembled army of the Persian Empire and now appears to be a significant threat to them. But having said that, if Alexander were to die at this moment in time, he would be a footnote in history, someone who was viewed as maybe a a good general, someone, you know, he'd be noted, but someone who's ultimately forgotten. And so in this episode, what we're gonna see is him becoming Alexander the Great. What did he do? What did it take to be remembered as one of, if not the greatest, probably the greatest of all time when it comes to generals and statesmen and conquerors. But before we get into all that, let's hear from a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Cold Plunge. I'm going to give you a little spoiler and tell you about an incident from the middle of Alexander's life. On one of the campaigns, Alexander had one of his officers, a powerful man from a well-to-do city-state, stripped of his rank. What was this man's offense that Alexander would punish him like this? He took a bath in warm water. Wild, right? Why was it so important to Alexander that his men bathe in only cold water? Well, he knew it kept them sharp. And actually, modern science has confirmed the benefits of cold exposure and cold baths specifically. Taking cold baths has been shown to increase blood flow, improve sleep, support your immune system, and boost your mood, among other benefits. That's why ice baths are something that I have incorporated into my fitness regime for a long time. But guess what? My days of hauling giant bags of ice from the grocery store are over. That is something I actually used to do. That's because now I am proud to partner with Cold Plunge. The Cold Plunge has cooling technology that gives you ice bath levels of cold without all the hassle. And with their filtration and sanitation technology, it makes the experience far superior to an ice bath or chest freezer. You can fill up your Cold Plunge with a hose, set your temperature, and you're off. It couldn't be easier. So check them out at thecoldplunge.com and use code BENWILSON to get $150 off. Once again, that is thecoldplunge.com and use my name as the code B-E-N-W-I-L-S-O-N for $150 off. So after winning the Battle of Issus, Alexander's most important task was something that we haven't actually talked a lot about yet, and that was ensuring that the Persians could no longer threaten him from the sea. He had beaten them at Granicus and beaten Darius himself at Issus, but the whole time, a Persian fleet had been harassing his Greek allies and threatening to link up with the Spartans, who never joined Alexander's League of Corinth, and potentially join them in an invasion of Greece or Macedonia. So you can imagine that there is a scenario where Alexander is winning battle after battle in Persia and going deeper and deeper into their empire, but it doesn't matter because with their navy, they're able to go around him essentially and invade Macedonia, his homeland, and kind of negate all of his victories. So Alexander's plan is to take over their ports and derive them of the ability to continue to fund and and operate this navy. And it turns out that most of the Persian navy was Phoenician, what was from their Phoenician allies, which is basically modern day Lebanon. So after Issus, Alexander marches through Phoenicia 
And without the Persian army there to protect them, most of the Phoenicians surrender to Alexander and turn over their cities, including their fleets. But there is one city that doesn't do this, called Tyre. And Tyre is in fact the wealthiest and most important city in Phoenicia, so it's a big problem that they won't surrender to Alexander. They won't surrender because first of all, they want to remain neutral. So they just kind of want to wait and see what shakes out. Does Darius win? Does Alexander win? We'll be cool with whoever does. They, they don't really care. They're not ideologically committed. They just want to wait and see. And then secondly, they didn't think that Alexander would be able to force them to obey him. Their city was slightly off the coast. So it's on a little island off the coast, uh, just a kilometer off the coast of, uh, of Lebanon. And it had multiple harbors and it had really big walls. And so it's really difficult to besiege because there's no land for you to, to have siege towers or battering rams. And it's really difficult if you don't have a big navy, which Alexander didn't, to cut them off from resupply. So, so it was going to be really difficult to besiege the city. They knew it. And so they decided to defy Alexander, thinking he couldn't do anything about it. So if you're Alexander, what do you do? Because they're basically right. It is very difficult to besiege the city. Um, and so in these circumstances, every proposal uh, is going to seem crazy. And Alexander himself has a proposal that probably seems craziest of all. But what he wanted to do was change the literal landscape. His plan was to shovel and build and connect the island with the mainland, not just by building a bridge, but by actually connecting it with stone and dirt so that it was no longer an island, but actually connecting it to the mainland. So he sets his men to building what is called a mole, basically a land bridge. And Tyre is about a kilometer from the shore, as I said, so they have to build a kilometer of of earth. And at first the soldiers and sailors of Tyre are just laughing at Alexander's men. Like they think they're crazy. Um, are, are you really going to shift the actual landscape? You're going to um, build a kilometer, not just a bridge, but of like actual earth uh, in order to come attack us. But day after day, as Alexander's men make progress, the Tyrians start to think, okay, this is still probably crazy, but maybe we should start to take them seriously. And so a game of chess ensues where each side is coming up with new tactics every day to match and beat the other side, kind of a game of cat and mouse. So, you know, the Tyrians say, we're going to shoot arrows at your workers so they can't keep building. And then Alexander says, okay, well, we'll build wicker walls for the builders to work behind so that they can't get hit. Okay, then we'll set our arrows on fire to burn your wicker walls. Okay, then we'll douse the wicker in water. Okay, then we'll launch a surprise raid to destroy your work. Okay, then we'll build towers along the mole and post guards, and so on and so forth. They're going back and forth with all these different strategies. And this goes on for seven months. And throughout it, this land bridge is slowly getting longer and longer. And at the end, they're able to roll up some siege engines and in conjunction with an assault by sea, get over the walls and destroy and subdue the city of Tyre. Now, this story is remarkable because it's almost the opposite of what we came to expect from Alexander the Great in the first episode. The main theme that I pulled out of that episode was cutting the Gordian knot, finding the simple solution that cuts through the noise and gets the end objective accomplished fast. Well, this is the opposite of that. He is literally moving earth. Um, he's literally changing the terrain in order to gain a victory. It's a slow and technically complicated solution that uses brute force rather than cleverness. It reminds me a little bit of Thomas Edison. His first invention, the phonograph, uh, his first big famous invention, um, was a, like a bolt of lightning out of the middle of nowhere. It's a new, clever way to solve a problem that no one else had thought of, and no one had thought of anything even remotely close. But then he gets to the light bulb, and he has no flashes of brilliance. He actually thinks he does early on, but he's wrong, and, and he can't find any clever solution that no one else has thought of because it's it's... 
it's totally different than what everyone else is thinking. And so his process for solving the problem of the light bulb is to just try thousands of different designs to see what will work. He just brute forces a solution through trial and error. And it takes him years, but he eventually does it. And that's similar to what Alexander does here. You gotta be able to have that dual approach of saying, okay, I'm gonna look for a clever novel solution here if I can, but if I can't find that, or if it doesn't exist, I'm just going to sit here and chip away at it and be patient and solve the problem through sheer grit and by bringing more resources to bear than my opposition. After conquering Tyre, Alexander turns his eye toward Egypt. Egypt was always important. It was a wealthy territory. It was basically the breadbasket of the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean. The Nile River Valley was extremely fertile and provided a lot of grain. And luckily for Alexander, they're basically inviting him in. He just has to go collect Egypt. The Persian kings had supposedly disrespected some of the local traditions, and so the Egyptians were ready to be done with them. And also, there was just nothing that Persia could do. Alexander was now between him and Egypt, and so the Egyptians were not about to defy Alexander when they had no real army of their own. So they essentially say, come on in. And of course, Alexander is over the top in his observances of the religious rites. As part of that, he becomes not just king of Egypt, but Pharaoh. And that title is a deatific, meaning he is considered not only a ruler, but technically a god. As I've noted before, Alexander made these religious observances not just for cynical reasons, but it appears that he was genuinely pious and a religious person himself. When he first comes to Egypt, he of course does all the necessary stuff of installing a satrap and doing some basic government reforms, but he soon takes a journey to a tiny little oasis town called Siwa in order to visit a very famous oracle there. And the god worshipped at this oracle was Amun or Ammon. Siwa was famous for their god, Amun, even though it was a, a very little insignificant town. It was not important politically, economically, um, geostrategically. It was literally in the middle of nowhere, nothing around. It's on the border of modern day Egypt and Libya. And so if you look at a map and look for Siwa, the city is still around, S-I-W-A, you'll see that it's just sand for hundreds of miles in every direction. And I think because it was so remote, uh, they had been separated from the Egyptian civilization and culture for millennia. And so they had their own gods that were very old, very isolated, very different. And so I think that made them seem kind of exotic. And so for that reason, everyone really respected their, their main god, this god Amun. Over the years, the Egyptians had recognized Amun as similar to their sun god, Ra, and had combined the two, which they referred to as Amun-Ra. And if you ever see any old movies about Egypt, like The Mummy, you'll see old-timey Egyptian priests saying in a very serious tone, in the name of Amun-Ra, I summon you from your grave, or, or, or something like that. Um, the hybrid god Amun-Ra was very important and still survives in pop culture, if you look at anything that kind of portrays old Egypt. Similarly, the Greeks were very impressed by Amun, and they saw him as very similar to Zeus, so they referred to the combined deity as Amun-Zeus. So Alexander goes to see the oracle of Amun-Zeus, as he would refer, refer to him, at Siwa, and he has to march through days in the desert to get there. The party that is with him includes many of his soldiers, uh, almost gets lost and almost dies in the desert. And again, there is no strategic advantage to this. He's risking his life, risking his army, risking this entire conquest because he wants to see this cool thing and have this cool experience. And some historians try to say that, no, that there must be something else going on here that we don't understand. There must be some political reason why he did this. He's making this visit to legitimize his rule in Egypt or for future propaganda use among the Greeks. And I don't buy that at all. I think that's way off. And I hate this attempt that we see sometimes to imbue every action in history 
with his monomaniacal pursuit of geopolitical power. Humans were humans back then as they are now, and they did things for power, but they also did things for other reasons, for wonder or curiosity or love or loyalty or hate or lust or simple enjoyment because they wanted to, and, and all sorts of, of various human reasons. And that's especially true of Alexander's story. He was someone who had really strong emotions and a really strong will. Arian uses this phrase over and over that um, he was seized by a passion. Um, he just wanted to do these things. So, so he's always off doing these little side quests that have nothing to do with anything. He goes and you know, he, he builds a, a altar over here or he goes and he visits an oracle over here. He founds a city here because he was seized by a passion to do so. So I definitely think it's a mistake to see Alexander as a force of nature, as a, a manifestation of economic or geopolitical forces greater than himself. He had a human will and he was able to impose that will on the world. So Alexander goes to Siwa and is able to ask the Oracle a question. We don't know what he actually asked the Oracle, though later reports would claim that he asked if his father's murderer had been avenged. And the Oracle responded that he was asking the wrong questions since his father was not immortal. He was not the son of Philip, but of Amun Zeus. And while this is probably a later invention, he does apparently have his question answered, whatever that was, and he has a deeply affecting visit to the Oracle. And ever after, he would refer to himself as the son of Amun Zeus, uh, though this doesn't appear to be a claim that he was actually the literal son of God and that he didn't have a mortal father. He always did claim Philip as his true father. But if you go through his lineage and through his genealogy, he was supposedly descended from Hercules, uh, who was the son of Zeus. And so his allusions to being the son of Amun Zeus is more a reference to his genealogy, but viewed through the frame of this visit to Siwa and, and this combined deity of Amun Zeus rather than just Zeus proper, the, the Greek god. So afterwards, after this visit to Siwa, he returns to Egypt proper, finishes settling his affairs, founds a new port city, which he would name Alexandria after himself. So clearly, even though he doesn't believe he's literally the son of God, there's still plenty of ego to go around. While in Egypt, Alexander hears that Darius has been busy fielding a new army. From the Persian perspective, Granicus was nothing more than a skirmish. And the Battle of Issus could be explained away as the Persians having underestimated Alexander and having been hasty and sloppy in their preparation for facing him. So from their perspective, now, now the Persians have the full force of their army. They're bringing in soldiers from Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Armenia, Iraq. Uh, they're bringing the full weight of the Persian cavalry. They're even bringing fearsome war elephants all the way from India. So now, Alexander, you're going to have to face us when we're good and ready. And furthermore, they're waiting for Alexander. This time, they're committed to fighting on friendly territory in a setting that will be advantageous to them and their style of fighting. So they're sitting in an open plain in northern Iraq near a tiny village called Gagamila near the modern-day Iraqi city of Mosul. With an open plain, they could use their superior numbers to surround and overwhelm Alexander's much smaller army. We don't know exactly how much smaller it was. Um, there are some wild claims in the sources that the Persian army was over a million men. Maybe it was. That seems unlikely that they could supply that many men. Uh, probably was closer to 100,000 Persian soldiers compared to 50,000 Macedonian ones. So Alexander takes the bait. He promptly marches his army from Egypt to Babylon. Uh, unlike the previous battles, you can tell that Alexander is slightly intimidated once he gets there because unlike other battles, he doesn't immediately attack. He gets a, a look at this massive Persian army and he takes a few days to draw up plans and prepare, which is a little bit unlike him. The Persian plan was obvious to Alexander and his commanders. 
They had their battle line out and waiting. They had cleared the land and made it nice and smooth. And they had a bunch of war chariots. So they would use those heavy chariots to break up the Macedonian infantry and then use their numerical advantage of cavalry to surround and flank them. Parmenion, seeing how difficult it would be to beat this massive army on their own chosen ground, encouraged Alexander to launch a night attack to surprise them. But Alexander disagrees. He said he didn't want anyone to be able to say that he had stolen the victory and illegitimately won the Persian Empire through trickery. Like all great generals, he's thinking not just about the tactics, but the psychology. And it's going to be hard to rule an empire if everyone thinks you stole it by being conniving and sneaky. So he arranges a much more straightforward strategy. Alexander arranges his troops much as he did at Issus, with the infantry in the middle and his cavalry on the wings, with his most elite troops, the shield bearers and the companion cavalry, on the right side, with him personally leading the companions. Unlike at Issus, Alexander kept a second line of infantry in reserve in order to meet any flanking maneuvers. So when the battle actually starts, Alexander attacks having his men move at an angle to the right. The Macedonian infantry dealt with the chariot charges well, opening up their ranks when necessary to allow the chariots to pass harmlessly through. And then, a lot of the details of this battle are missing because even at the time, people didn't know what was happening. It, like I said, it was a big, flat battlefield on a dusty plain in Iraq, and the horses running around are kicking up dust, so no one can really see what is happening. And it becomes really chaotic from an overall cohesive battle perspective. You have individual squadrons of cavalry charging and countercharging each other on both the Macedonian and Persian sides. You can imagine, it must have been terrifying if you're infantry. You can't see anything, but you can hear the clash of steel, you can hear men's battle cries, you can hear men dying and screaming around you, you can hear horses running in every direction, and you never know when a squadron is just going to pop out of the dust right on top of you and, and attack you before you even know what's happening. But despite the overall uncertainty, we do know some things of what happened in the Battle of Gagamila, and the battle unfolded in a very familiar way, if you can remember back to the Battle of Issus. Alexander's left flank, led by Parmenion, is seriously threatened and faring poorly when Alexander, on the right side of the line, notices a weak spot in the Persian line and charges straight through it with his companion cavalry. They burst through, head straight for King Darius, who once again turns and flees from the battlefield. He apparently did not learn his lesson at all. And just like at the Battle of Issus, this flight of their king and leader sends the Persian army into a general retreat. They all start freaking out. And once again, Alexander is unable to pursue Darius as he would like, because he needs to turn back around and support Parmenion's left wing from being overrun. And I should mention that Parmenion you know, could get a bad rap because he's almost losing in every single one of these battles. It's not really his fault. He was apparently a very, very capable and good commander. He actually won a few battles on his own without Alexander present. It's just that this was Alexander's strategy of give Parmenion just enough cavalry on the left wing to not collapse and then amass all my best cavalry on the right side, which I will use to really attack and break their army. So after the Battle of Gagamila, Alexander has lost very few men, perhaps 500. And while we don't have accurate numbers of the Persian casualties, it's safe to say that it is in the tens of thousands. It's a slaughter. The Persian army was crushed. While Darius would still need to be pursued and captured, with this, the war is basically over. After the Battle of Gagamila, Alexander was, for all intents and purposes, the new master of the Persian Empire. And I just need to point out that this strategy of taking advantage of the pivotal moment is really common among great generals. Uh, Alexander did this time and time again. So he's got these Sarissa spearmen who have these really long spears and they just poke and prod and wear down the enemy and uh, the battles will go on for hours 
And then once everyone is kind of tired out and you think that all their energy is expended, that's when Alexander, boom, busts through with his companion cavalry, his, his personal companions, his, his best cavalry, and uh, he takes advantage of, of this moment and, and breaks through and breaks the enemy army when they're least expecting it. And Napoleon did this really well as well. He generally won his battles late in the day after the other side was tired. And he would similarly charge his most elite units against the weakest part of their line and break through and break the enemy army. Julius Caesar was also great at it. In fact, the Romans basically systematized and institutionalized this style of fighting. Whereas most armies would deploy the vast majority of their forces right from the beginning, the Romans would typically have three rows of their army and only deploy the first in the beginning. Uh, this is called maniples, this is their system of fighting. So they had plenty of reserves that they could hit their enemy with throughout the battle and kind of shock them uh, later in the battle. And the last thing on this, this sort of pivotal moment strategy, um, I know I've brought this up before, but I, I love this as an example just because it's so similar to what Alexander did, but the basketball team, my favorite basketball team, the Golden State Warriors, in you know 2015, 2016, 2017, around that time period, they had this lineup that was called the death lineup. And it was unstoppable. Uh, when they played these five players together, they would just demolish teams. But they would never play that lineup until the second half of games, or, or rarely play it until the second half of games, late in the third quarter and, and for most of the fourth quarter. And a lot of people, myself included, would criticize their coach, Steve Kerr, saying, hey, if this lineup works so well, why don't you just play it for the entire game? And that seems to be what makes sense, right? If you've got these these great troops, if you've got these great basketball players, play them the whole time. Um, but you know, he's the genius for a reason. He won multiple championships and coached some of the greatest teams of all time because he's smarter than people like me, I guess. And I doubt he was intentionally mimicking Alexander the Great and Napoleon, but he was very much using the same strategy as them. He would put a perfectly good lineup in at first, um, but but store something, keep something in the tank until that pivotal moment. And uh, I haven't quite worked out necessarily how that applies to, to business and to other domains, but I think it's something worth reflecting on of how do I not show all my cards right at the first? How do I hold something in reserve until maybe people are not expecting it, un until my opponents or my competitors are a little bit worn down and boom, that's when I hit them. So uh, I think it's a lesson to be learned from the life of Alexander. After Gagamila, Alexander quickly establishes control over the main power centers of the Persian Empire. He enters Babylon and takes control. They don't oppose him at all. In fact, archaeologists have found some temple records from the time, which I find kind of funny. Um, on the morning of Gagamila, Darius is described as the king of the world, right? So, so in these temples in Babylon, they keep an account of the major events that happen on every single day. So morning of Gagamila, they say, king of the world, Darius marched out to, to face these barbarian invaders. A few days later, the record reads, Alexander, king of the world, entered Babylon. So you can see how Alexander's strategy of continuity was paying off. It was very easy for people like the Babylonians to just accept that there was now a new king of the world. You know, Monday, king of the world, Darius. Tuesday, just so happens to be that the king of the world is now Alexander. And life goes on. After Babylon, Alexander marches to Susa, the administrative center of the Persian Empire, and captures it without resistance and seizes their treasury, but otherwise leaves the city untouched and undamaged. He then marches to Persepolis, which was the ceremonial seat of the Achaemenids, the ruling dynasty of the Persian Empire. Remember, he's basically running for king of Persia, if you want to think of it like an election, on the platform of continuity. 
That's why he left Susa completely untouched. It was the administrative capital of his new empire, just like the old empire, so things are carrying on the same. But Persepolis was different because it represented not the actual empire, but the dynasty of Darius, the Achaemenids, the guys that had been the rulers before Alexander. So Alexander lets his men run amok and completely pillage the city of Persepolis. He has the treasury completely emptied and taken back to Susa. And then Alexander does one of the most controversial acts of his entire reign and burns the city down. Arian says that Alexander made a calculated decision to burn Persepolis as revenge for past Persian incursions into Greece. Diodorus, another ancient historian, relates it a little differently. He says that Alexander was up partying with his companions and he'd had a few drinks in him when he was convinced to light the city on fire by a prostitute. So who knows what the truth is? I think, uh, well, I think Arian is probably a little more reliable, but in either case, Alexander soon regretted the decision. While it did damage Achaemenid prestige and really made the idea of Darius somehow making a comeback as king impossible, he also created a rift with his Persian subjects. He was disrespecting their traditions and their sacred symbols in the most egregious way possible. And like I said, he regretted it. In any case, word soon came that Darius was gathering forces in the far eastern reaches of the empire. He was no longer able to muster a force that could even come close to touching Alexander. Um, he wasn't going to be able to go, you know, my army versus your army again like he did at Gagamila. But the fear was that if he continued to hang out at the periphery with a ragtag group of forces, perhaps if things started to not go well for Alexander, that might inspire other areas to eventually rebel and join Darius. So Alexander furiously pursues Darius through these northern regions uh, in what a lot of people call the Stan countries, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. And uh, it's interesting, he really pushes his men really hard, force marching them, having them charge headlong into well-fortified enemy defensive positions instead of waiting. You can tell he's really impatient to capture Darius and have this thing 100% done with. And I think there's a lesson there about never leaving a thing mostly done, even if it's 99%. You know, like there was virtually no chance of Darius making a comeback. Very few forces with him, you know, like less than a tenth of what Alexander had. But you've got to wrap it up 100%. I actually, I have this problem sometimes that when I finish my script, I, I relax a little bit uh, when I'm for a, a new episode. In my head a little bit, I'm like, oh, well, I'm done. Even though I haven't edited it yet, I haven't recorded it yet, I haven't edited the recording and released it. Like there's still work to be done, but yeah, I'm 95% of the way there. And so I, I relax a little bit instead of keeping my razor sharp focus until it's, until it's released, until it's 100% done. And so this is a good lesson for me to learn. Um, and I think good lesson for everyone. Alexander knew that he couldn't rest until Darius was captured or dead. Eventually Darius, um, who, who was on the run, is betrayed by one of his top generals, a man by the name of Bessus. Bessus stabs Darius and leaves him for dead. And this really upsets Alexander, who wanted to capture Darius alive so that he'd get the official handoff. You know, he could basically force Darius to tell everyone, hey guys, listen up, Alexander's the new king, or at least execute Darius himself. So Alexander is really upset at this Bessus guy. And when he eventually catches up and captures Bessus, he has his ears and nose cut off in the Persian tradition and sends him off to be executed. And so then with Darius dead and with Bessus dead, Alexander is really and truly the unchallenged king of Persia. With the war won, Alexander's men prepare to head home. They're, they're thinking, great, we did it. We set out to conquer the Persian empire and Darius is gone. Alexander is sitting on the throne in Susa at the, at the court of the Persian empire. Mission accomplished. And um, Alexander though has a different perspective. He wasn't done. 
And he's frustrated that his men aren't as enthusiastic about the prospect of further conquests. And he's got other issues as well. He's now got this international, multicultural, diverse empire. And problematically, he's got two centers of power, the Greek side and the Persian side. And he couldn't rule as a purely Greek ruler if he meant to maintain the loyalty of his Eastern subjects. The methods of ruling over them were just too foreign. Greeks were very egalitarian compared to his Asian subjects. In Greece, Alexander was first among peers, but in Asia, he was expected to be above everyone else, almost a god. The Persian king actually was not technically considered a deity, a god, but it was pretty close. And you might think, well, okay, but are they really going to care if he treats them in the Greek way, if he treats them better, if he treats them more like peers, if he acts more humble? Why would they care about that? Why would they be upset about that? And, um, but I think that's wrong. I think if you think that it's because we live in a very egalitarian society that's closer to the Greeks. So, so we see it from their perspective very easily. But, um, if I can go back to another basketball comparison, let's say you play a guy one-on-one and he just smokes you. He beats you 21 to nothing. No problem. Never breaks a sweat. And at the end of the game, you go, man, you're really good at basketball. That's impressive. And he says, "Ah, actually, I suck. I'm, I'm not good at all. Um, like, okay, maybe he's trying to be nice, but actually it's just kind of like, well, then what are you saying about me? Like, if you think you suck and you just smoked me, how bad do you think I am? And that's how everyone in the Persian empire felt like, okay, it's okay if we get beat by someone who is regal, semi-divine, a force of nature, Alexander the Great, robed in purple. Um, But if it's this Greek who comes in and beats all your armies and starts acting like, actually, I'm just a guy like everyone else. I'm not that special. It's actually insulting. So Alexander's in a real pickle. His first instinct is to try and split the difference. He began dressing in a mixed way that combined Macedonian, Greek, and Persian garments. And he took an Eastern style harem with a different concubine for every day of the year, but he didn't actually make use of it. He didn't sleep with all these women. So you can see like, you know, he's trying to balance. I'll take the harem, but I won't actually use it. Uh, he, he, you know, he allows certain Persian nobles to continue to serve as administrators and advisors, but he mostly keeps his senior positions filled with Greeks. He, he, you know, he, he's trying to fuse the two. Um, the most famous way that he tries to fuse these two cultures is with this practice of proskinesis. So this is something the Persians did. Um, it was a very formal, traditional way of greeting the Persian king. If you were a commoner, it meant fully prostrating yourself on the ground. And if you're more elevated, uh, if you were a noble or something like that, it meant just bowing. Um, and there were very specific prescriptions for, for how to bow for each, you know, fine degradation of how noble uh, you were. Um, But this was something that was very offensive to Greek and Macedonians. And um, not just offensive, but borderline funny. You know, they kind of mocked this practice of like, oh yeah, we're we're gonna bow to Alexander. So he doesn't, again, he's trying to fuse these two cultures. So he doesn't make the Greeks fully observe proskinesis, but he does sort of skirt around it by setting up a shrine of Zeus next to him and making his Greek subjects worship when they come to visit him. So you can imagine how this looks, right? He's basically setting up a picture of Jesus behind himself and saying, okay, so when you come to see me at the beginning, you have to say, thank you for blessing me this day, Jesus. And I'm going to say, you're welcome. But to be clear, I'm not Jesus. You're just, you're just saying, thank you, Jesus, to the, to the picture behind me. And so like, it's a little disingenuous, right? He's basically trying to get his, his Greek and Macedonian men to observe proskinesis in this sneaky way. So there's an incident where Callisthenes, a close friend of Alexander and his official biographer, uh, won't observe proskinesis and he's openly mocking people who are doing it. 
um, in, including Persian subjects, for whom this is an important thing to bow to Alexander. And so, um, you know, it's a problem for Alexander. And when a group of pages conspire to kill Alexander, Callisthenes is also arrested for having inspired them. And uh, the sources are unclear on what happened to him, but he's either executed or dies of natural causes while imprisoned, depending on the source. So you can see that this is a major issue, this effort to fuse the two cultures, so much so that Alexander's really close friends are getting caught up in plots to, to potentially kill him. It's a real pressure cooker environment. There are other plots as well. Um, one young aristocrat hears of a plot to kill Alexander from a, a young soldier, just a kid, and, and tells Philotas, the son of Parmenion, and nothing happens. Parmenion doesn't share this information with Alexander. And so this, this young aristocrat who's heard of this plot goes back and tells Philotas a second time. And finally, the young man takes a different route and makes sure that Alexander finds out about this plot. The conspirators are summarily executed once Alexander hears about it. But the question arises, well, what should you do with Philotas? Um, as a son of Parmenion, he had served an important role in Alexander's major battles. He was a strong leader, capable military commander, and he had done a lot to help Alexander achieve his victories. But when he had failed to notify Alexander of these plots, did that mean that he hoped they would succeed? Um, you know, clearly he wasn't openly plotting himself to kill Alexander, but, you know, was he maybe leaning in that direction if he's just not reporting information about, about plots to overthrow the king? Now, Philotas himself claims that he just didn't take the threat seriously. These were the imaginings of a young man. They didn't constitute a real threat. Um, and, and so, you know, I got nothing against you, Alexander. I just, I just didn't think it was worth bringing up. But a lot of the other nobles are jealous of Philotas's lofty position. Um, and so Alexander has Philotas tortured and killed. Uh, and then, you know, you can't kill the son of Parmenion and just leave Parmenion as the number two in the army. So he also sends assassins to kill Parmenion before he can find out about his son's execution. It is kind of sad. I mean, it's an ignominious and ungrateful end for a man who had served Alexander and Philip really well for decades. And he'd contributed a lot to both of their successes. So perhaps Philotas was negligent in his reporting of the conspiracy, but you know, there's also a part of you that wonders if Alexander was A, either just a very suspicious person who was seeing plots where there were none, or B, you know, if this was an opportunity for him to remove someone who could have served as a check on his power, right? Parmenion was the second most powerful person in the empire after him. And if you think about if Alexander were killed, um, Parmenion is definitely the most likely person to have taken over. And maybe the only person who, if enough people had gotten behind him, could present a real threat to Alexander. So maybe he is preemptively removing that threat. There is also a third incident um, where this guy, Black Clytus, who, if you remember back to episode one, he's the one who saved Alexander at the Battle of Cranicus. You know, Alexander himself is in the fray. One of these Persian guys takes his sword and is literally about to chop Alexander's head off. And this guy, Black Clytus, comes and chops his arm off. And so he's a good friend, a close companion, a man to whom Alexander owes his life. And they were both drunk at a party one night and they start quarreling with Clytus saying that Alexander was forgetting where he came from and you're forgetting your Macedonian roots. You're forgetting your father, Philip. And by the way, all your victories you owe to Philip. He's the real one who did all of this. You're kind of just riding his coattails. So Alexander gets mad. Um, 
their companions, their friends separate them. Alexander's asking for a sword, asking for a spear. No one will give it to him because they're hoping that, you know, this will end peacefully. Black Clytus leaves the party, at which point Alexander is able to acquire a spear. Uh, but then Black Clytus comes back into the party. And when Alexander sees him, he hurls the spear through Black Clytus's heart and kills him. By all indications, this was not done intentionally. This was something that was done in a drunken rage because of an argument. And Alexander, sort of immediately after killing Black Clytus, comes to and, and realizes what he's done and is immediately horrified and, and starts weeping and wailing and mourns for three days afterwards, refuses to come out of his tent. Um, but it is another sign of how fractious, how combative, how difficult things were getting, that his Greek and Macedonian subjects were really chafing under this new hybrid model where, where he's adopting some Persian customs. And so this effort to fuse the two cultures is at first pretty unsuccessful. After a year or so of this, of administering and ruling over the Persian empire, he decides that his conquest of Persia is actually not quite finished. Darius I, the founder of the Persian empire and of the Achaemenid dynasty, had conquered the western part of India, the Indus River Valley, more than 200 years previously. Since then, the Persian kings had not really ruled it. They hadn't exercised any control over it uh, or, or over any part of India, and they hadn't really tried. They had kind of written it off, but they nominally asserted that they were technically the rulers of, of this territory in India. And so when Alexander takes the throne, Indian exiles start coming to court to see him. And these are men who just like in Greece or Persia had lost civil wars or struggles for power and were now seeking allies to put them back on their various thrones in India. And Alexander sees this as an opportunity and also didn't want to leave anything undone. He wanted to make sure that the entire Persian empire was under his control, even those parts that hadn't previously complied with the Persians. And so that's the nominal reason that he gives for going and, and, and launching this invasion of India. Um, however, I don't think it's the real reason. I, I think that the real reason that he invaded it um, was, well, let me put it this way. I don't think it was very much fun to just administer and run the Persian empire. Um, you're constantly meeting with delegations from various regions who are complaining about your policies or appealing for some change or another. It's a bunch of squabbling over scraps, right? You're constantly worrying about backstabbing, court intrigue. You're mostly sitting in the same throne, in the same court, as you take meetings and hear petitions day after day after day after day. Contrast that with what life was like when Alexander was on campaign. You're basically camping in a new cool place every single day. And you're not just camping, but really as the king, you're glamping, right? You have this huge tent, well heated, new good food is being brought to you every day. And speaking of food, Alexander was a light eater, of course, as you might imagine, but he really enjoyed trying new different kinds of meat and fish uh, that he was able to find and enjoy as he went on these various conquests through all these new areas. This is before refrigeration, so you can't really just sample food from all over the empire. Um, as you go to a new area and there's new native fish, you're, you're tasting new things that you never would have been able to taste before. So again, he's in nature, he's got this nice tent, you get food that's delicious and new and exciting. You're hanging out with your top commanders all day who also happen to be your best friends. And oh yeah, anytime you have a decent sized victory, you get to throw a big festival where the best athletes in the world come to compete in games, the best actors come to put on plays, the best musicians come to play, and you get to drink and party and enjoy all of this. And if you're someone who enjoys sightseeing, uh, I mean, compared to our day, Alexander had the best sightseeing in the world, right? Uh, our globalized world that we live in is actually kind of homogenous, uh, especially compared to Alexander's day. F for him, 
Each new city brought new languages, new customs, new manners, new gods, new histories, new stories, new temples, new architecture, uh, new landscapes, new things that, that people had never seen before. So, um, look, Alexander is addicted to being on campaign. He's addicted to being at war. Part of it is this reason that, yes, he was a competitive guy. He liked to win. He liked to get more power. But I also think he's addicted to it because it was just fun. It was just fun to, to, to be doing all these new things and seeing all these new things. So he goes to India. He fights a number of battles, the biggest and the most famous of which is the Battle of the Hydaspes River. And once again, Alexander is fighting against overwhelming numbers, attacking over a river. And this time, he's facing a large contingent of great war elephants. Um, Darius was actually able to bring some, some war elephants to the Battle of Gagamila, but they were never used for, for whatever reason. We actually don't know why. Maybe they just didn't fit into his battle plan, but he never used war elephants. So for the first time, Alexander is facing war elephants in battle. And you can imagine the shock that his soldiers must have felt seeing these huge beasts who have spikes on their on their tusks and are trampling around and trying to crush men. And so supposedly there's very hard fighting at the river, but eventually Alexander is able to encircle the army of his opponent, an Indian king named Porus, and force him to surrender. Alexander's actually extremely impressed by this guy Porus and his war elephants. Uh, Porus was six foot seven, very impressive warrior, very fierce. And so Alexander actually befriends him and after the battle allows him to keep his kingdom as long as he promises to submit to Alexander, which he does. Now, according to some sources, Alexander expected that he would soon reach the edge of the world. Not that he believed that the world was flat, not the edge in that way, but what the Greeks and Macedonians believed was that there was essentially one continent, one Pangaea that was all connected and that it was surrounded by a great ocean. And Alexander thought that he was close to that ocean and, and close to the edge of, of Asia. Now, of course, we know that he was only on the western side of the Indian subcontinent. There was still all of India to cross and then, you know, Southeast Asia and China. So, so there's a lot of Asia left. Um, but he didn't know that. And he talks to Porus, who tells him, yeah, actually, like, there's a bunch of other stuff after this. And Alexander says, all right, okay, let's go. Let's, let's conquer them as well. But before Alexander can, can lead his men, they mutiny. Um, they hear that the next Indian kingdom over, now known as the Nanda Empire, was a massive empire with a huge army, thousands of war elephants, hundreds of thousands of men. And at this point, the longest serving of the veterans have been on campaign with Alexander for 10 years since they left Macedonia. And so they're like, hey man, we're not going on. We're not going to attack this next empire. And Alexander says, fine, all you ingrates who don't want gold and glory and who want to abandon me now, you can go back, but I'm going to press on with those who will follow me. But after a few days, it becomes clear that that's basically no one. Um, Alexander is going to have to go on alone. So he sulks for a few days in his tent, uh, really upset that he can't go on, but he eventually agrees to turn around. And so his conquests end in Western India. He sends much of his army back to Persia with his general Craterus but he leads the rest of them down the Indus River on barges and boats that they either build or acquire from the locals and then leads them down and then leads them home through the desert along the coast of modern day Pakistan and Iran. This is one of the most controversial decisions of Alexander's career because it's extremely dangerous. It's basically unknown, unexplored territory and it benefits him nothing. There are no kingdoms, no even major cities on this route home that he can conquer. According to Arian, he did it to outshine other conquerors, none of whom had explored this territory. Well, unfortunately for him, 
they hadn't explored it for a reason. And that's because it was extremely barren. There, there was nothing and it was extremely dry. There's no water, very little food. And so his army suffers terribly on this home crossing. Um, they suffer of thirst and malnutrition. Actually, a bunch of his soldiers die. Um, and, and it's actually getting really desperate as they as they get along. And men are just dropping like flies, dying of thirst. Um, but as it looks like it's about to get really bad and, and like, hey, maybe this will be a danger actually even to Alexander and, and, and they might all die. They reach the Persian region of Carmania and uh, that's more fertile and settled. And so they're saved and uh, and they get back. And, and Alexander is able to get back to his empire and, and take command again. When Alexander comes back, he has to purge a number of officers who had got up to nonsense. There was a bunch of corruption while he was gone. Some were cruel to local populations. So he sets about reforming the government that he'd established. And he's also still trying to marry the Greek and Persian halves of his empire. So he does something very curious. He gets Persian wives for his nobility and has them all married in a mass wedding for hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands of people. He himself takes two Persian wives, the daughters of the two most recent Persian kings. These marriages largely did not work out, as you can imagine. They didn't even speak the same language as each other. And most of the Macedonians just left their Persian wives behind and headed back to Macedonia. But it showed that he was still trying to marry the two cultures to create a single cohesive political unit, in this case, by literally marrying the two populations. And once again, this fusion is making people uncomfortable. At one point, he decommissions his older and wounded veterans, and this really throws the Macedonian soldiers into a fit. They're worried that Alexander is trying to replace them with Persian soldiers. They're thinking, okay, so we just conquered this whole empire. We conquered the whole world for you with our sweat and our blood. A bunch of our friends have died along the way. And now you're turning around and handing it on a silver platter to the people who we just conquered, who we spent all this time and effort conquering. Alexander responds. He says, quote, I will speak not to quell your longing for home, Macedonians, for you may go wherever you wish as far as I'm concerned. But so you may realize as you depart, who we are, you and I, that you should act toward me in this way. I will begin as is appropriate with Philip, my father, who took you up when you were helpless wanderers, most of you dressed in skins, pasturing a few flocks in the mountains and fighting ineptly to protect them from your neighbors, the Illyrians, the Triboli, the Thracians. He gave you cloaks to wear instead of skins, led you down from the mountains to the plains and made you able to hold your own in battle against your barbarian neighbors. So your safety depended not on your mountain strongholds, but on your own courage. And I, I won't read the whole thing, but he goes on and on recounting how, you know, they had come from these nothing barbarians up in the mountains, wearing skins, you know, keeping a, a few sheep as pastures. And he had taken them down, settled them, made them a, a mighty nation, conquered the Greeks, conquered the Persian empire. You know, Philip and Alexander had enriched these men, given them fields, um, given them everything they could possibly want. And now they're so ungrateful that uh, they're complaining to Alexander about their treatment. You know, how dare they betray him after all this? And uh, the speech basically works. <laughs> they they kind of remember like, oh, you know, he's got a point. The guy's got a point. So there's a big reconciliation with his men and he has a big banquet with his Macedonian men and his new Persian soldiers to try and build a spirit of harmony between the two. It's not entirely successful. There is still this feeling of unease, uh, but it's good enough to at least placate his men and, and keep them from open revolt against him. At Babylon, after this, Alexander is able to make his plans for his next big invasion. He plans to invade and conquer Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula, modern day Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, all that. But one night, Alexander's out partying when he comes down with what's at first just a mild fever. 
He continues to plan his invasion, believing that he's going to get better soon, but his condition only continues to get worse. His fever is getting worse, and he's weakening until he can barely even speak. Many have speculated that Alexander was poisoned, but the duration of the sickness, which was a number of days, at least a week, um, and the slowly worsening symptoms seems to point to an illness, perhaps malaria, and probably not poisoning. As his condition worsens, people start to worry about who might take over the empire if he should die. At this point, Alexander did have an infant son who could be expected to reign eventually, but someone would need to administer the empire in the meantime. As it became clear that Alexander would not recover, that he was going to die from this illness, whatever it was, his top generals and friends crowded around to hear his last words and, and his wishes for, for what he wanted to happen uh, after he went. And of course, the question on everyone's mind is, is who do you want to take over next? And uh, so they gather around, they're, they're all close by, and they ask him, Alexander, to whom should the kingdom go? And with the little energy that remained in him, Alexander whispered, to the strongest. We can only imagine how those men must have felt standing around Alexander's bed as they realized that they were now at war with one another, essentially. I'll eventually get into what did happen to his empire in the end notes episode that's coming soon, but I'll leave it at that as the end of the narrative portion of this story. So what are we to make of the second half of Alexander's life? What lessons can be learned? First of all, from the siege of Tyre, we learned that sometimes there is no clever solution. Sometimes even the greatest commanders just have to grind out victories with long, arduous effort. From his battle at Gagamila, we learned the power of the pivotal moment of keeping your best strategy, your best effort in your back pocket until your enemy is worn down and then overwhelming them and breaking their spirit. From his pursuit of Darius, we learned to never leave a thing mostly done. Never take your victory lap until the thing is 100% finished and no opposition stands in your way. And we can also learn to, and I mean this completely unironically, follow your passion. Um, it's a little funny to think of conquering as Alexander's passion, to think of like little Alexander in elementary school. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to conquer the world. But I do think that this is someone who was passionate about everything that he did, who felt emotions very, very strongly, was, was often guided by his emotions for better and for worse. And, um, and I don't think Alexander could have done what he did if he wasn't having fun while he did it. The last lesson I would draw is just to bask in the greatness. Alexander never lost a battle. He built an empire more powerful than any that the world had ever seen. He was absolutely restless and insatiable in his desire to see more, experience more, do more. He was the original man to receive the great moniker. He served as the inspiration for Pompey, Caesar, Hannibal, Napoleon, and others. I think that when another man worthy to be called great is born into this world, he will take inspiration from Alexander. He has been dead for 2,300 years, but somehow he lives on in the hearts of those who revere his life. There's an example of this that I really like. When Octavian, better known as Caesar Augustus, was in Alexandria, he asked to see the tomb of Alexander the Great. He stayed in the tomb for a long while, contemplating Alexander's long shadow and his incredible legacy, probably thinking about how he might stack up to Alexander. When he was done, his guides asked him if he wished to see the tombs of other Egyptian kings in the city. No, he said, I came to see a king, not corpses. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with Alexander the Great Endnotes episode. As always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at HTTOTW. That's the first letter from each word in How to Take Over the World. 
H-T-T-O-T-W. Or you can email me at ben at H-T-T-O-T-W.com. And if you like helping out the show, please leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Bye. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.